0: Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Good morning. Coming up to three minutes past nine, you're tuned to 102.73 Triple R. This is Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. My name's Bron Burton. And
1: I'm Cade Mills. Hi Cade. Pumped today. Yeah. We're looking forward to this. The weather is gorgeous this morning. Waking up to that sunshine. Light northerlies if you're by the coast or hopefully you're heading to the coast. um, Good conditions for a wave. It's not too big, not too small. But I did notice that Bells is off today. The Bells comp starts today. But, um, you yeah, know, it's not big enough for the, the pros. So they're having a bit of a lay day, which everyone loves that idea of having a sport where you just take a day off because conditions aren't right. And they got it good, don't they? <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's that beautiful um, autumn weather patch that we get with... Everything, you know, we get a little treat of some warm weather and some calm seas and hopefully the swell picks up for the surface. But everything's opening up again. I was in the CBD yesterday watching um, Nat Harris – and uh, Hannah Camilleri's
2: One comedy the, festival, the Friday Funny Bugger, in yes, Paris. Yeah, yes, breakfasts.
0: So a little plug there for their show. Um, it was it was very entertaining. But um, yeah, absolutely pumping. Kind of you know, walking through the city, feeling everything coming alive again. Oh, it's energising. It, yeah. it, it
1: really is. It's great to see it. Yep. Um, you know, get out there. Yep beautiful. If you can and be COVID safe, of course.
0: Yes, indeed. Yes, I was. thanks for putting that caveat in. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> true. Hey, thanks, Tim, very much for Vital Bits. Thank you, Andrew, for Soulful Bits. Bit of blues this morning. I did enjoy listening to that driving in.
1: Yes, and to let people know, Tim will be interviewing Kurt Vile next Saturday. I heard him announce um, and those who listen to Tim know that he doesn't mind throwing in the odd Kurt Vile track every day. Yeah.
0: <laughs> So, uh, yeah, look, thanks. Yeah, tune in for that one next Saturday and Sunday for uh, another six hours of wonderful Vital Bits. We have a huge show. Uh, we've realised looking through it, it's there's a little bit of a, a theme of fishing that's running through the whole thing. We're, we're getting out the crystal ball and looking to the past and also to the future of marine and coastal management, but there's a little fishing theme running through this. Um, we're f- shortly going to be catching up with Bob Carney and he's a lifelong recreational fisher, uh, but he's also the Emeritus Professor of Fisheries Management at the Institute for Applied Ecology at the University of Canberra. So he's kind of had this life of recreational fishing in his pastime, since he was, you know, since he was a kid, but also working in fisheries management throughout his entire career. So, after sixty years of being involved in fishing, he's written a book. It's called "Fishing in the Good Old Days." Was it really better? Uh, covers covers a bunch of different things. So, we're going to be um, speaking with Bob about this book and whether he's found an answer to the question.
1: Yeah, that's going to be a controversial one, I'm sure. It's going to be, it depends. And, yeah, yeah, there's a grey area with all that. But, yeah, it'll be amazing to talk to him.
0: Yeah, just the changes to, you know, from when he was a kid and starting to fish and there was no fisheries management. It just didn't even exist as a concept Uh, because the sea was seen as this great big kind of, you know, this thing that just could absorb everything and just keep producing fish forever with no, you know. So.
1: Yeah, it was an endless resource is what it was looked at and also a place where you could just go and dump a whole lot of stuff as well and you'll never see it again. That's but, it. We um, know better these we've days. We've learnt differently, yes. yes.
0: Um, we are then going to be catching up in, in a conversation with Chris Smyth. Um This is a series running throughout 2022, which is 20 years of marine protected areas in Victoria, Cape.
1: Yeah, so Chris, we had him on um, in February, early February, February the 6th, if you want to go back and listen to the part one. Um, talking about the creation of marine national parks in Victoria and what was involved in that. And there's a very pivotal moment in it which was – well, no, I don't know whether pivotal is the right word. Chris can let us know around getting a few um, marine and conservation superstars in Australia and in particular in the Triple R Studios. Yes. And we'll get to hear some of that, I believe, Bron. You brought through uh, some snips of, what, 20 years ago?
0: Yeah, 20 years ago. So this was back in March 2002 when – we can speak to it more when – when mm. Chris is on, but when um, part of it was orchestrated and part of it was just serendipitous, just good timing and was one of those things where all of a sudden the stars all aligned and then the stars literally aligned in the studio, the yeah. superstars. So, yeah, we'll talk about that and play a little four-minute excerpt of an um, interview that uh, I did along with Dave Speller with uh, David Bellamy, David Suzuki and Sylvia Earle. Yeah, wow. So, Yeah. Pretty cool.
1: And I'm sure we've moved on in the last 20 years and we learnt all the lessons and we've made great progression. Well,
0: that's it, isn't it? So we're going to be talking about this concept yes, sorry, of 30 by 30.
1: We will, yes. Yeah. So the idea of protecting not only 30% of the world's oceans but also 30% of the world, yep. the terrestrial as well. So it's a, it's a big one there and I think Chris is probably the perfect person to chat to about this.
0: Uh, then we're going to speak with Michelle Chiers. Uh We caught up with Michelle very briefly last week. She is the chair of the Rye Community Group Alliance about some concerns that she and some of her, uh, her colleagues, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word here, but people who are, are with her. Understand uh, the importance of environment and are just a little bit concerned about um, some plans to install 16 large concrete structures as a new artificial reef off Point nepean So there was an article in the Sydney Morning Herald and in The Age last weekend um, talking about this and we caught up with Michelle briefly about it. So we promised, we only had five minutes, we promised we'd come back and talk more today. So that's what we're going to be doing.
1: Yeah, it'd be interesting to hear what they've learnt since they sort of approached fisheries to ask them for a bit more information because I think that's where the the problems that are lighted that they just got smacked with this is happening and hadn't been any lead-up and consultation.
0: That's what they were planning on doing last week, so we'll see what's happened in, right. the, in the week that's just gone. Busy. Uh, I believe you have a little weather forecast there, Kate. I do
1: have the weather. As I mentioned earlier, the weather is spectacular. There is a little bit of swell around, so perfect for you. It's not enough for the professionals, but it'll be enough for most. Um Then we're heading into you know that autumnal weather for the next couple of days with highs of 18s and nice chilly nights and then it's going to be fantastic wednesday thursday 21 on wednesday 25 on thursday a bit of sun And then just in time for Easter, the rain's going to start coming. It's um, (laughs) 23 on – but it's still going to be 23 on Friday and 20 on Saturday, but there is forecasted for some rain at that stage. If you are hitting the waters, you've missed the first high tide because that was at quarter past five this morning. It's low at um, 11.22 at Port Phillip Heads and then a high at six o'clock tonight, which means when I get home, I might still have time for a wave this afternoon later today. And that's the weather for us. Nice. Thanks. We, we don't quite have a snow forecast yet. No. No.
0: That'll be coming. Yep. Maybe.
1: We'll
2: see. A yeah.
0: <laughs> couple of quick plugs and then we're going to play a track. track. Um, these are just some things to watch out for. Uh, one on the ABC. It's a new drama series called Barons. It's set in the 1970s and hoping to line up an interview with some people to talk about this. So set in 1971, time of sexual liberation and social change Barons captures a unique moment of upheaval and opportunity as new surfing counterculture and the spirit of Enterprise Collide. So it's a story of, and I'm reading here from their press release, a story of surf-crazed group of hippie friends. It sounds like you and your mates, Gabe. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I Gabe. Um, I wasn't born in era 71. I was born in that era. I wasn't surfing yeah. yet. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, turn their backs on the world in search of their ideal patch of surfing paradise. It sounds a little bit kind of morning of the earth-ish.
1: Yeah, mixed in with puberty, puberty blues. blues. <laughs> exactly. I was thinking the same
0: thing. So uh, anyway, this one starts uh, April 24, I believe. Uh, so just, yeah, something to watch out for. We'll mention it again in the next couple of weeks, but it looks like a good one. Yeah, April 24th, Sunday, the 24th of April, 8.30pm on ABC TV. Another one I wanted to mention quickly is this is a a great looking film called The Big Wave Project Two. So Tim Bonithon's latest anticipated film, four years in the making, six K and eight K ocean cinematography, the latest inside stories of the greatest historic swell events in the world of big wave surfing, narrated by legendary big wave surfer Tom Carroll. So this one is on at the Astor Tuesday May third, so it's in a in a couple of weeks time at seven pm, and in Geelong at Village Cinema. May the fourth at May the fourth, Star Wars Day. <laughs> <laughs> Can't get past that in my head. At uh, at six thirty, uh, and then going all around the country as well. Yeah,
1: and I think the only place you can watch a big wave film is on a big screen.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I'm with you there. 9.14. You're listening to Radio Marinara here on 3RRR. Now Bob Carney is a lifelong recreational fisher having spent countless hours fishing off the New South Wales rocks and beaches since the 1960s. He's also Emeritus Professor of Fisheries Management at the Institute of Applied Ecology at the University of Canberra after spending his career researching and managing fisheries in many countries. So after spending a lifetime of fishing for fun and for work Bob has asked the question is fishing as good as it used to be? The result of exploring this this question and many others is the brand new publication Fishing in the Good Old Days. Was it really better? To tell us all about it, we cross now to speak with and welcome author Emeritus Professor Bob Cunny. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Welcome to Triple R. Welcome to Radio Marinara. Thank you. Now, I'm uh, assuming the answer to the question isn't straightforward, otherwise, uh, we wouldn't have a 300 page book here in front of us.
3: <laughs> no, it's <laughs> certainly not straightforward. There's no doubt that the fishing was different. 60 years ago that that is not disputed but how different and were there parts of it that were better or parts of it that were worse that's what I've debated in the book
0: What led you to write the book and who have you written it for
3: Well I wrote it because of a number of, for a number of reasons one because my father when he passed away I realized that all his fabulous fishing stories were lost forever and I felt that it was an obligation of mine not to do that to my children and grandchildren. Excuse me. But I also was getting a lot of pressure from my colleagues who suggested that I had a unique uh, combination of being, you know, a mad fisherman and also being a fishery scientist and that I had an obligation, particularly as I had partially taxpayer-funded education, a responsibility to report what I'd found after my... 60 years of working on it and and that was uh, two or three of them were really persistent that I should do that so I wanted to do it.
0: You do have that unique combination of of recreational fisher but working professionally in fisheries management but then also in ecosystem management as well it's that it's that sort of that conservation zone of interest. Where you know, we found particularly over the, the twenty-five years that we've been broadcasting this program, if there's ever an issue related to fish in particular, it's always caught up in that triangle of debate between those two those three key sector groups. So I think it's particularly fascinating that you've written this book because you have that perspective from all three
3: sides. Well, that's definitely what I intended to do. I've tried to use the fishing stories as the glue, if you like, that keeps a broader range of readers interested and leads them through until I get to the serious science stuff, but by then they've been exposed to a lot of the expressions and examples that I've used to understand some of the things that if I'd just started cold turkey with that, it would have been pretty hard to wear, I think.
0: Um, Let's go back to the 1960s and just some of your experiences with the rock fishing in particular that you, you describe and talk about in the book. What was fishing like in the 1960s?
3: Well, the main difference was that there was nobody there when I fished the rocks at Kingscliff, particularly at night time. If I didn't have them to my have the rocks to myself, I was pretty disappointed because you know your chances of catching a big fish, in particular, went up if you had it on your own. And so there was totally different attitude to fishing. The gear was nowhere near as good. The techniques that we had were nowhere near as good because the gear wasn't there to use those techniques. But the, the real advantage was that the place was pristine, you could look down the beach and see nobody except yourself. <laughs> and and you know, it was just a, a seriously different ecosystem because we hadn't really ruined a lot of the areas that I learnt to love as we have now. And some of those places that I fished then are virtually completely gone now, not just changed, they're gone.
0: I guess it was also pre-technology in a way Um, and I'm curious as to your thoughts on whether just knowledge of what needed to be done when you went fishing happened through stories being passed down and learning from, you know, mentors and peers, parents, grandparents and so on. Um, There's a really great anecdote at the start of the book where you talk about coming across someone who who sort of just wanders into your patch and turns out to be a tourist and has completely the wrong set up with gear Ends up getting pulled into the water, not once but twice. Um, I can't imagine. Well, maybe it does still happen these days, but with information out there and, and fishing is big business now. You know, you have these major companies that exist with with you know stores all over the country that have huge um, you know huge range of product that they sell. Is that, is that part of really what's changed as oh, well? That,
3: that's a huge part of it. Uh, you know, that part and also the part of environmental degradation are huge issues. And I'll get to the environmental one for, uh, in a minute because you've asked the question about gear. But it's very hard to estimate how much better gear is. We know that it's hugely better, but how much that affects what's called in the science term, the effective fishing power of the angler of the average angler. There is absolutely no doubt that the average fishing power has gone up at least tenfold mm. and and maybe closer to a hundredfold. When you take in things like Uh, braided lines and soft plastic lures and all of these other, and graphite rods, etc. they make a big difference. But when you then go the extra step to boats and put in GPS and echo sounders now that aren't echo sounders anymore, they're true fish finders and you can actually watch individual fish swim around, the fishing power that that creates is enormous. And I I stress in the book that in 1960s in Kingscliff, which is where the book is based, there was only one commercial fisherman. And he had a 14-foot boat with a 20-horsepower outboard motor, no echo sounder of any sort, no GPS and no mobile phone. So incredibly poor safety uh, devices as well as fish finding devices. And there is no doubt that the average angler's boat these days is something like 50 times as effective as was the one commercial fisherman back then. The only thing the commercial fisherman then had going for him was he was the only one there doing it. And so what fish there were around, he could cherry-pick what he took. So that was that made it possible for him to make a living.
1: Hi, Bob, it's Cade here. Uh, look, I haven't actually read the book, but what I was interested in is, I guess, you've been talking a lot about the science... But when you say, was it really better, how do you measure the better? So is it more fish makes it better, the environment makes it better, the technology? What is it that is potentially better or worse?
3: That's what there's there's a whole chapter devoting to the definition of better because oh, better I, sh- I should have read the book it, <laughs> when when you say makes it better that means you're comparing something with something now you've got to be comparing the same things to really work out whether it is better there is no doubt it has changed greatly that is beyond debate but whether it's better det- is determined by the person who's determining what is what they enjoyed about the fishing in the first place and I list 14 categories of people in that that i determined very early on and they range from those who want to accumulate the biggest pile of dead fish you can imagine to those who are simply out there and don't want to catch a fish they're they're enjoying standing knee deep in beautiful clear blue ocean water or in a beautiful pristine stream and just enjoying being there And, and you know i've always remembered you go back to famous fishing books Dino Colotta's, you know, John O'Grady's book, Gone Fishing, and I remember one or two lines in that. He said, the only problem with going fishing with your mates is there's always some silly bastard who wants to fish.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Now, which of the 14 different people are you, I'm curious?
3: For me, sorry.
1: Which of the... You said there's 14 different people from the dead fish to the standing outside. Well, where that, do you fall in that? As I
3: explain in the book, I started right at the top and finished up almost right at the bottom because <laughs> I started in the days when recreational fishers all sold their fish. They yeah. weren't... You know, that was the done thing. And when I went to get a fishing licence, the fishing inspector who was selling the licenses t- talked me out of it and said, you're mad, you know, because everybody was selling their fish. So that's where I started. I finished up letting... You know very big mulloway jewfish as we call them then go and uh, i still do let a lot of fish go but i still catch a lot of fish and eat them and so it depends on which category and i go fishing in new caledonia on the beautiful sand flats and fish for bonefish and never keep one but enjoy it immensely so A lot depends on the day, where I am, what I'm doing. And this happens for so many thousands of people that there are seriously different reasons. And that's why you cannot assume that it was better or worse for all back in the good old days.
0: That almost answers the question, I think, to the book. Um, there were a couple of other things I wanted to ask you about. One was fisheries management because you, there's a, a chapter on this, Fisheries Management 101, um, and talking about prior to the 1950s, there there really wasn't much fisheries management and there was this expectation that the ocean we were talking earlier about, the ocean being this magical place that could just absorb anything that was put into it like sewage and pollutants and with no consequence And and, and at the same time supply an unlimited amount of fish forever. Um, so I'm interested, particularly, this is, I guess, speaking more to your professional side, how you think the impact of fisheries management has changed changed things in terms of fishing.
3: The point you make is, is absolutely correct. Right up until after the Second World War, say the 1950s, it had been assumed that you know, the oceans were limitless from a technical perspective and that you could pump all the sewage you wanted into them and it would just miraculously disappear. And they also assumed that it was impossible to overfish marine species. Freshwater fish were different because they were enclosed, but marine ones it was considered to be impossible. Now, this in the state of New South Wales, unfortunately that fallacy was adhered to right through until the mid-1980s and the fisheries managers at the time were, I guess to put it simply, incompetent. And they didn't really consider that it was possible. So they didn't even measure the recreational catch at all. They had no idea of what it was, let alone managing it. So that had to change. And it did change. And we started to find out by then, by the 1980s, most countries had realised that you could overfish marine species. And seriously so. And Australia finally woke up by about the year 2000 or a little bit earlier. And at that stage, we had in Commonwealth fisheries, we had 40 species listed as being overfished in the year 2000. That number today is zero. There is no overfishing of Commonwealth managed species going on. There are still about five species that haven't fully recovered and they're on the overfished list, but they are not currently being overfished. And so the management is, in fact, of the last few weeks, there's some changes going on to try and make things a little bit better for those species that are still struggling to recover. But the real point for people to remember is that fisheries management is really easy if you try. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of countries in the world that do not even try. And that's why overfishing is still rampant in many places of the world. But it is not a global problem. This is a really major point Uh, global warming and and climate change is a global problem because every country's uh, gas emissions mix in the atmosphere and nobody can fix it on their own. Fishing, if you're in an island state like Australia, you can fix it on your own and countries have got a responsibility to fix it and we can do it. Fishing is not a major threat to the marine environments of Australia and it's silly to consider that it is. Things like pollution in many forms, we talked about sewage outfalls, urban runoff, agricultural runoff. Introduced pests and species, they're real threats. Fishing could be a threat if we didn't manage it, but it is re- really easy. Fishing is really easy to manage compared to all those other threats, and we're getting better at it.
0: Excellent note to end on, um, Bob. Thank you so much for joining us today here at Triple R and Radio Marinara. We've been speaking with Emeritus Professor Bob Carney about his book, Fishing in the Good Old Days Was It Really Better?, published by Melbourne University Press, available in all good bookstores. Whoops. Um, <laughs> Excuse me, I've just knocked my microphone. We'll put a link to that on our Facebook page, Bob. And, uh, look, thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. So did we.
0: Thanks so much. Speaking with Bob Carney there. Oh, yeah, so much goodness happening at the moment with the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Wanted to give a plug to Triple R's former Breakfaster uh, and she will always be part of Triple R, Geraldine Hickey's Now I've Got a Boat. She was talking on Breakfasters about it a couple of weeks ago. So, yeah, make sure you get to that one.
1: I must have missed that. I'd be curious... um to hear that. It's marine themed. Maybe we can get her on marinara. Yeah. talking about it. Good link. Now
0: you've got a bit of news there, Kate.
1: I just wanted to follow up on something you were talking about last week about the blue bottles washing up on the beach mm. and people reporting that I have um, live on Phillip Island and I've found quite a few while I'm over there. And aside from the um, satisfying noise they make when you stand on them, when they're dried up on the beach, they get that lovely pop. And the thing that makes it pop is that air bladder that's in there. And, and so they're already
0: dead, by the way. They so. are
1: already dead. I'm not standing on the live ones, yes. Yep. Um, but they got that air bladder, and that is what basically the reason why we're finding them sort of washed up here at the moment. We've had this La Nina wind cycle, a lot of easterlies, so you know the jellyfish are coming from warmer waters, getting blown down the coast, and then these easterly winds are just pushing them across Bass Strait, and they're sort of circling around and mm. ending up on the beaches over here. And it, I actually saw a news article which kind of scared me, and maybe I won't go popping them anymore. Is that they can actually maintain their sting for a very long time and now we know that with the tentacles will snap off and you'll get stung by a tentacle that there's no jellyfish attached but some work done um, in queensland by dr jamie seymour said that he'd successfully stored freeze-dried box jellyfish venom for 25 years and it was still viable today wow. So that's freeze-dried and then said there's there's no definitive research um, done to determine how long they can last but it's estimated that it could be a thousand years wow yeah so they just sit there ready to go. Yeah. And it can potentially be for that long. Now, they lose a lot of the potency because obviously not as many are firing over that time, but they still maintain that viability for such yeah. a long time. And
0: it's going to depend on because they're, they're stored in little cells called nematocysts. So yes. They're, they're, we're basically spring loaded and, yeah. and, and responsive to touch. And
1: just structurally, as long as they maintain that structure, they're ready to go. Yeah. So, yeah, I just thought I'd follow up on that and a bit of mind blowing information for
0: Amazing. the day. Amazing. Yeah. Thanks, Kate. 931, this is Radio Marinara. In just a moment, we're going to be joined by Chris Smyth to continue our conversation of 20 years of marine protection here in Victoria with marine national parks and then uh, move on to that idea of 30 by 30. Yeah, Triple R is where you are, where the time is 23 minutes to 10. And uh, just before those announcements, we listened to a Melbourne outfit called Sea Lungs. Lighthouse Noir was the name of that track, and uh, thanks to Jared, band member and uh, listener of Marinara, who sent that in. They, he says that a lot of the stuff that they do is sea themed, so we'll definitely play more from Sea Longs oh, and
1: Teacher. Fantastic! Nice to know we're inspiring someone. Yes. Yes. Uh, look, <laughs> our next guest is Chris Smythe. We had Chris on on the 6th of February. Talking about the work that went into getting Marine National Parks um, legislated in mm. Victoria 20 years ago. And, you know, the work didn't start 20 years ago. started a long time before that. But we got to the stage in the interview. So if you want to go back and listen to the first part. But we got to the stage in the interview where we were just about to talk about um, a chat that happened in the Triple R studio that Chris was a part of. And I wanted to sort of, you know use that as a touch point for you know basically what happened from there and I believe Bron has some tracks to play for us around it.
0: We'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, Welcome back Chris Marsh.
4: Good morning Bron, good morning Cade.
0: Great to have you back with us and um, yeah where we left off with that conversation it was that real groundbreaking time and sort of everything was really building to to that point wasn't it and it was it was a couple of decades of campaigning leading up to the point too.
4: Yes it goes back right back to the the 80s when Uh, The Land Conservation Council was developing proposals. Uh, They uh, established some marine protected areas in South Gippsland. And finally, though, uh, over the next uh, 15 or so years from that, uh, the ideas developed for highly protected marine protected areas. And eventually, uh, when the Brexit government came into power at the end of the 1990s, they uh, had a policy of establishing a Marine National Parks Network across Victoria's coastal waters and And the next couple of years after that uh, was when the campaign reached its full full peak I guess in trying to get legislation through parliament which took a couple of goes
0: and there were champions for marine protection along the lines of what was being proposed here in victoria around the world so in new zealand in particular they were the real trailblazers for this with the lalee marine national park which had been established some time earlier but then there were other uh, champions and campaigners around the world like callum roberts who was a, a key influencer i guess in this space but in particular two world heavyweights in marine conservation that the VNPA brought across to Australia to do some local uh, um, uh, promotion, but also just just that sort of one-on-one conversation that happened with, with politicians and all sorts of people of influence. And, and that was the amazing work that you did along with Tim Allen, Chris.
4: Yes, I remember the day when um, I met David Bellamy at the airport and he arrived... In his typical safari suit <laughs> and clutching a very small section. I said, well, Let's go and get your luggage. He said, That's all I've got. Oh, really? <laughs> and he was with us for a few days. And Sylvia Earle had also come out for this particular time. This was in between uh, the failure of the legislation and eventually the legislation getting up in the middle of 2020. So it's 2002. And we used them very heavily right through the next few days. And one of those uh, events that we had was uh, the interview with Dave and Sylvie, but also David Suzuki in the the, uh, Radio Maranara studio. But we also had David and Sylvie go down to Phillip Island uh, at the Bunurong Marine National Park proposal, and they spoke to people in Phillip Island. They also were involved in a business breakfast at the town hall in Melbourne. Uh, They also had this fantastic sold-out night at the town hall itself uh, where we had full supper rooms, full to the rafters. And uh, I also flew down to Warrnambool with David uh, where he spoke to students at uh, Deakin University. Um, And that was – he had them in stitches basically. He had them in the palm of his hand just talking about the need for marine protection. And so that week, and then there was some polling came out, which was quite positive for us. And I think it built up the momentum to eventually get the legislation over the line.
0: So what I want to do at this point is to play a little excerpt from that interview that you just referred to, Chris. How that came about was that we already had organised or you had organised along with Tim to have David Bellamy and Sylvia Earle in studio. And through sheer uh, coincidence, we learned that David Suzuki was also in town, basically just to flog his new book. And we kind of one day just went, why don't we see if we can get all three of them in the studio together? And it was literally our people talked to their people, uh, our people being us, we we kind of did that ourselves was um, Dave Speller who got to Suzuki's Publicist and of course you know having that opportunity to come in, talk about marine conservation with Sylvia Earle and with David Bellamy, you know none of them wanted to pass that up that opportunity so we're going to play a little excerpt now from that interview, it goes for about four minutes and it was during a point in the conversation, um, the interview went for about 40 minutes overall but there was this point in the conversation where we were talking about the opposition to the concept of marine protected areas, particularly from uh, the fishing sector and the recreational fishing sector who were at that point in time the loudest, most outspoken opponents to the concept of marine protection?
3: I think most people... Um, ask if you ask them the question what do you fear or look forward to most in the future, they'll say, will my children have a good job and what sort of environment will they live in now I mean those things are um, soluble in economic terms as long as we put ecology at the base of the economy, most of the fishers I've met along this coast here they say, oh yeah, the fish was much better Dave when I was young, so there they say themselves it's going wrong and therefore they've got to be part of it in uh, the recuperate and the rehabilitation of these areas.
2: The key is understanding. With with knowing comes caring. With caring there's some hope that we might be able to get it right, find a place for ourselves within the rest of the many species that David Suzuki described that uh, occupy or share the planet with us or that we share with them. But there's no guarantee that if people understand what's going on that they will care. But I can guarantee that you can't care if you don't know. The magnitude of our ignorance about the ocean is so vast. I mean, less than 5% has been seen at all. But we know enough, after all of the time that humans have been around, we know enough to know that we are utterly and totally, completely dependent on the existence of the ocean for our own survival and our own well-being. Economically, environmentally, all things lead to the ocean. And one thing is also clear, that the ocean now, and I use the word singularly because all all the oceans of the world tie together into one ocean, the ocean is in trouble. We have taken so much out of the ocean, especially in the last half century, during the lifetimes of people now around, the changes have been profound, more than during all preceding human history have been brought to the ocean through our new technologies, our ability to find and extract creatures from the sea at an unprecedented scale. Also, what we're putting into the sea is the other great source of trouble. And again, our capacity to change the chemistry of our life support system, the ocean, through what we allow to flow into it. From the tops of mountains, the headwaters of rivers, from fields and farms, our backyards, even our golf courses, have an impact on what is way downstream. And here's the bottom line, if the ocean is in trouble, so are we. The oceans are in trouble, the ocean is in trouble, and therefore so are we. So what are we going to do about it? Part of the solution, not the entire solution, but a big piece of what is the right thing to do is inherent in this concept of doing just what we did for the land in the 20th century to establish parks, preserves, protected areas. Not just for the likes of the two Davids here and myself, the tree huggers, the whale huggers, the fish huggers of the world, or for the trees and the critters that live there, but it's for all of humankind forever. It's our life support system that we're establishing some protection for.
5: I think one of the difficulties you face in the developed world is that we've we've had huge capital investment in the in the fishing fleet, and these ships are, unbelievably efficient predators. They can, you know, in, in, on the west coast of British Columbia, you can literally take out an entire run with one set of the net because your ability to identify them, locate them, and take them is so immense. So when you've got that amount of money invested in your fleet, it's very, very hard then to pull back because you're involved in competing internationally. The global economy then is, is demanding that you keep that productivity up. So our experience in British Columbia is that when you get the stakeholders there they're very, very reluctant to give up any inch of their share. And e- even the sports fishers who just go out and do it for fun, man, they are one of the most recalcitrant groups going. And they will oppose marine protected areas right down the line. So my suggestion uh, it has been that you've got to get communities where they've gone through this argument, where you get fishing, uh, fishing people who fought it tooth and nail, but when the M- MPAs were were finally put in place they became evangelists for it because they could see the concrete results so i think your community when there's a bitter debate raging ought to hear from people who've already gone through it paid the price and then reap the benefit
0: if you've just tuned in that was a four-minute excerpt from an interview that we did with david bellamy sylvia Earle, and david suzuki 20 years ago chris Smythe. can you believe that was 20 years ago and it feels just as relevant today as it was back then
4: yes the three of them have very different ways of getting their message across. I find Sylvia's presentations quite mesmerising but inspiring. Just the, the quiet way she goes about outlining the details. David is far more forceful in the way he puts his arguments across. That's David Bellamy, and, and Dave Suzuki is somewhere in the middle, I think, in terms of how they present. But they certainly. Uh, certainly inspired everybody during that time and there was one other event that I forgot to mention that uh, David and Sylvia went to Uh, we did a a major lunch down in Geelong so we we'd gone to the key areas where I guess a lot of support was coming along the coast that was within about an hour or two's drive of Melbourne where you had uh, very changing demographics people moving down the coast Uh, Melbourne people other people moving down and I guess bringing a different mindset to how they viewed the natural environment along the coast and the reason why they'd moved down there was because they wanted to be near the coast. And then they started to learn more about what was out in the water.
1: I actually just brought you on, Chris, so you and Bron could catch up and talk about the good old days 20 years ago, (laughs) which has been fascinating to hear. And that interview, that excerpt you brought in, Bron, was sensational. And as you said, it's still so relevant now. And it's something, having heard it now and having recently seen that there's going to be, there's a target is coming out for the world to protect 30% of its terrestrial environment, but also 30% of the oceans by 2030. So I love, there's always, you know, Kevin 07, 30 by 30 is the new one now. But we still have such a long way to go. Now, I'm just curious, Chris, like what, What needs to happen, what needs to change for Australia, and I guess in particular Victoria, to work towards these targets of 30% protection?
0: Is it even possible, Chris? Uh,
4: These these are global targets. And certainly the campaign for 30 by 30, which is 30% of terrestrial and ocean by 2030 in some form of aerial protection, uh, it's a global target and so all the effort at the moment is going into getting global agreement between various countries and so there's various alliances pledges um, and so on but the key moment is coming up in a couple of weeks time and that is the convention the conference of the parties for the convention of biological diversity it's being held in kunming china and on the 25th of April through to the 8th of May, and they're going to be, hopefully, signing off on a a national a post 20. This is this is very much UN speak, a post 2020 global biodiversity framework. And in that framework, at the moment, there is a commitment to 30% protection on land and 30% protection on the sea. Now, whether that survives. Uh, I guess we'll find out soon enough. There's certainly a lot of countries, a lot of organisations, a lot of philanthropic bodies and, and so on, uh, and even and also Indigenous communities which who are supporting 30 by 30% target. But clearly it's one thing to get the targets, the other thing to actually implement it. But certainly previous targets around about 10% certainly motivate a lot of countries to increase their level of protection in the oceans and also on land. And so one would hope that if the 30 by 30% target is approved, then that will certainly filter down into various actions of governments around the world. Now, in the case of Australia, uh, you may have heard of the, the new declaration of the Cocos Keeling and Christmas Island Marine Protected Areas. Uh, they cover 74 million square kilometres and 99% of those parks are highly protected. 1% is in sort of around the near shore areas where artisanal fishing and, and charter fishing can go on. And there's certainly a very intense conversation going on within the communities there to ensure that that fishing remains sustainable in those coastal areas. So that means that Australia now has 45% of its Commonwealth waters in some form of marine protection, and that is around about 17% in highly protected areas. Now, compare that with Victoria, we have 5% in highly protected areas, and you can add another 7% if you include the areas in Corner Inlet and that's Sanctuaries and, and, and Yeah. So that's, Chris, sort will... of, that's, I guess, where the numbers. But in terms of Victoria, what would we need to do?
0: Chris, we're going to have to pause that one, I think, for now for next time because we have one last guest to get on our program before we finish up. But is is I think that's a good moment to pause because we'll have you back on in a few weeks' time, Kate? Yeah,
1: Chris part three, it seems it's going to be it's um as we said, it's just twenty years of marine reserves this year we're celebrating, but it is great to have someone on to you know look forward and what we've got ahead of us. So thank you again for your time, Chris, and we'll catch up again soon. No,
4: pleasure. All the best the rest of Sunday to you and your listeners. <laughs> thank Thanks, you. Chris, and
0: to you.
2: See
4: you later.
0: Yeah, Triple R is where you are. And on last week's Radio Marinara, we brought you some news reported in the Sydney Morning Herald of plans to install 16 large concrete structures to form a new artificial reef off Point Nepean. The art- article features some concerns raised by three highly respected environmentalists from the Mornington Peninsula, including Judy Muir, long term friend of Marinara, and Michelle Cheers, chair of the Rye Community Group Alliance. We only had a few minutes to briefly touch on those plans and their concerns, so we welcome back to Triple R. Michelle Cheers. Good morning, Michelle welcome back. Thank you Bron
6: and thank you for inviting me
0: back. Now let's get to the nuts and bolts of this um, what's been planned and what led to that article last weekend um, because uh, yeah we're here at Maranara I feel like we've got a pretty good handle on local marine issues and this one certainly came from left field so what is it that's been prepared uh, is being planned uh, and and why is your group so concerned?
6: I think, I, I mean, I think there's a number of us that are concerned, Bron, down here, but, that just value that beautiful, pristine part of Port Phillip Bay. And uh, it came out of the blue to us as well. It was really an article in the local newspaper by one of the directors of the uh, Future Fish Foundation, David Kramer. You know, it's a, it's a sort of very powerful lobby group and seems to have the ear of the premier. And uh, so there'd been no consultation at all. It was basically David Kramer saying, you know, this is a fait accompli. It's due to start. At that stage, it was due to start in March. So 16 of these huge reefs are to be installed just off Observatory Point, at um, which is off Point Nepean National Park. So, so the the age sort of picked it up as well, and uh, and did sort of a bit more of an in depth interview of of what might be going going on. And council, our Mornington Peninsula Shire Council has also been concerned. So it's 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 not just um, you know individuals. It's it's quite sort of substantial groups that are that are worried about what's happening without consultation.
0: Michelle, when we spoke with you last week, you mentioned you were trying to make contact with both the coastal managers at DELP and also the uh, Victorian Fisheries Authority. How have you gone there over the last week?
6: Um, there's, been, there's been silence. I mean, we've written, and many people have now written, including the Mornington Fincher Council. But as far as I'm aware, there's been no response. I did get a response early in the piece from uh, Travis Dowling, from the CEO of, of uh, VFA, and And he I mean he he I think was probably surprised as to why there was a fuss because he just said it was a two thousand and eighteen election promise of the premiers and uh, and they were just doing you know what was was agreed and and while it may have been an election promise, it the election promise didn't say that a reef had to be installed
0: at point the Yes, and I guess usually with these big projects that are underway, there's usually an engagement component that's built in, uh, in terms of having some proposals like this. There's a, a website called Engage Vic where some of these big proposals often get placed. Um, do you know if that occurred with this particular proposal?
6: No, I'm pretty sure it didn't. I'm pretty sure there was there was no consultation whatsoever. I mean, they've already they've installed 13 other apps. And I'm not sure there was consultation about them either. But this is the most sensitive location, so it's not about anti-reef; it's about where they want to put this this reef. And and I don't think I mean the Mornington Peninsula Shire Council didn't know about it.
0: So, so uh,
6: that's
0: The article suggested that the works would be commencing within the fortnight, and this was a week ago, um, which yeah. would suggest that it's coming up in the next week or so. What what's your plans for the next week ahead, Michelle, as you follow this one through?
6: Again, it's it's just pressing for answers, and and I mean it's 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 pretty it's pretty outrageous when you think about it. When you think a lobby group has more power over what happens in Port Phillip Bay than the large majority of users of the bay, and the fishing lobby group is is exactly that. I mean, when when you look at the risk assessment report, which was the only little bit of information we managed to. Forget, it's certainly not an environmental impact study. It talks about things like, um, you know, the, the it says a set of marine habitats and conditions that are unique in Victoria and probably Australia: sponge garden, canyon, geoforms, entrance deep, the rip.
0: Michelle, well, we're going threatening- to have to. Hi, Michelle. Sorry, we're going to have to stop there. We've actually already gone into time of the show that comes up oh, after okay. ours. But it's all good. Okay. Look, please stay in touch with us and let us know how you go um, with your attempts to make further contact, and uh, and we'll be in touch with you. Or you stay in touch with us, and uh, we'll continue our, our conversation with this one in the weeks ahead. Okay. Thanks. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Michelle. That Michelle cheers there bye from bye. the buy from the Rye Community Alliance. That brings us to the end of Marinara. With apologies to Radiotherapy, we've already cut into their time. And uh, thanks to our guests, Michelle cheers, Chris Smythe, also Emeritus Professor Bob Carney. We'll put all the relevant links to that on our Facebook page. Thank you, Kate.
1: Thank you, Brian. And
0: thank you so much, Kent, for paneling for us. He's going through the revolving door, and uh, I believe Panel Beater will join you shortly, along with Prudence dear and Dr. Nick. Next week, you'll be in with Anthony.
1: Yes, and we have no idea what we're talking about, so stay tuned and watch the socials. (laughs)
0: Excellent. Have a wonderful uh, Sunday. I'm going to take a couple of weeks off. I will be back in about three weeks. So, yeah, go out there, enjoy the marine environment and uh, enjoy the time off. If you have it coming up, and, uh, yeah, I'll catch you in a few weeks. Bye for now. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook
2: page.